your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. The 27th United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP, Conference of the Parties, is happening in Egypt. Today's guest has contributed his research to these conferences and to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. He has also contributed his positive imprints here on the show, episode 73 in 2019, and then I remastered that episode and re-released it, episode 176, which is fabulous. He is also heard on episode 165, in which I took quotes from many of the oceanographers and scientists that I've had on the show, and edited an absolute phenomenal episode that I know you will enjoy, episode 165. Well, again, my guest, Professor Nathan Bindoff, is a professor of physical oceanography at the University of Tasmania's Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies. And my gosh, as I said, he's not new to these climate conferences. He was the coordinating lead author on the Oceans chapter in the Fourth Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 2007, in which he was awarded a certificate for his own contribution of Al Gore winning the Nobel Peace Prize. And then again in 2014, he took a lead in the fifth assessment climate change report. His research is world-renowned with his most recent work documenting the decline in oxygen content of the oceans and dynamics of the southern ocean. When he's not on a boat doing research, he tries to be on his own boat that he built from wood a hobby that he so much enjoys. And now he is here to provide climate change updates because you— my listeners specifically asked for Professor Nathan Bindoff. Professor Nathan Bindoff, thank you again for coming back to the show to share all of the updates that you have to offer. Welcome, and it's so good to see you. (laughs) Thank you, Catherine. It's lovely to be here, and I did enjoy the last time I was on. The listeners very much have enjoyed the information that you provided. You provided a history on IPCC the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and then your research. There's a lot taking place since 2019 when we chatted last. I'm not sure if it's my a new job relative to our last conversation, Catherine, but my job is the program leader or director or CEO of the Australian Antarctic Program Partnership. And that's actually a program located in Hobart, hosted by the University of Tasmania, to sole focus the role of Antarctica in the global climate system and the consequences for marine life in primarily ecosystems and and so on. It started in June 15, 2020. I just finished the special report on oceans and cryosphere in a changing climate. It's kind of a pleasure to talk about these um, things that where you have just a little bit of extra time because then it allows you to kind of give up more information and kind of set a context and that that makes a difference. Oh, absolutely. And it's also your positive imprint. So it's the legacy that you're laying out of your work that is always going to be there. And I just think that is exciting for you because listeners were asking for uh, Nathan Bindoff. 
Oh, you have such a huge smile on your face. <laughs> oh, that's grand. That's grand. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, but uh, on the last episode, you said that you have done your job and you have brought the research and the information to the world. And now it's our turn, right, to take that information and what are we going to do with it? Are we doing what we need to be doing based on the research that you've done yeah. and the predictions that are out there? So it's best to actually to just think of what the IPCC said, that that really represents much more than myself. It represents hundreds of scientists. The report that Matt Palmer was in, the Working Group 1 report, so that was the one about the physical science. And that report came out just before the conference of the parties number 26. And that report just highlighted the, the non-technical term here, absolute certainty that research community has around the changes and influence of climate change on the earth. And, and we are um, very convinced. So we use words like unequivocal, human influence is unequivocal in the climate system or similar words. And what we're really saying is that the evidence is mounded up and this working group one report that was just released before the conference of the parties made those points again. And then there's the new parts that are coming. In the earlier reports, if you go back to 1990, when they first started out, those reports, they barely said that humans were causing climate change. This report says, sure, it's, it's got to be human influence. And then the second part is actually there are these whole new areas where we didn't understand before, but now we've really got strong inkling that these are going to change dramatically uh, with climate change. And one of them is around heat waves. Heat waves, you're experiencing heat waves in the Northern Hemisphere. We've just had a cold wave in Hobart, but those heat waves are going to be very significantly increased in frequency and intensity. And that message is so much stronger in that last report. You know, the um, with one degree, heat waves on the planet are five times more probable with four degrees, they're actually 40 times more probable. And four degrees is a possible choice that society could make. So if you think about it, the latest report that Matt Palmer contributed to and some parts led, that report is really saying that the consequences of climate change are non-trivial, they're substantiated by the past that we've seen, and they're not to be ignored, but they can be averted. And in fact, the IPCC had a report on exactly that matter. It said that 1.5 degrees is a viable outcome, actually. If, if society makes the right choices, we can actually mitigate enough and have only a 1.5 degree temperature change. And that means that things like these heat waves 
which have been terrible in the northern hemisphere this summer will be not much bigger than they currently are and that would be a really good outcome actually that would be a really good outcome we would avoid some of the worst excesses that are projected with high emissions type scenarios so so it's a choice and the conference of the parties which came after the release of that report it has words like we will phase down coal now phase down isn't as good as phase out but here is a whole sector that the world has had the industrial revolution built on being phased down and out <laughs> the phase down is actually a great thing that we're talking about and in that conference of the parties uh, 26 so this was the meeting held in glasgow led by the english government it was talking about phase down uh, coal that's more or less the removal of a whole sector of the global economy that kind of language is really great to hear because for me we've been talking about the science and the science has been contested and for 30 years we're not having this contestation of the science so much now we're actually talking about how industrial sectors can be phased down or out we're going to phase out the internal combustion engine so if you think about it these are the sort of specific solutions you, we need desperately need to actually make the curve for re reductions of emissions emissions have to go to zero that's a big call that's a fantastic transformation and getting it to zero really means we've got to get on have peaked this decade and have a very strong downward trajectory by the end of this decade so there's a lot of work a lot of implementation to make the solutions come together so from my perspective it's really good to hear people talking about those sorts of things actually and of course it does mean my work is done <laughs> there are other climate scientists who are going to keep the pressure up of course and talk about how these marine heat waves atmospheric heat waves even droughts floods how they change right all these things how that consequences for wildfires impact on bush how the ecosystems will actually suffer as a consequence of droughts fire and these things collectively are putting pressure on the global ecosystems so language on solutions mitigation of climate change is is actually genuine good news it is a human problem which means of course humans can fix it it's not something mysterious you're very optimistic i'm your positive imprint i am supposed to be optimistic i have students that i had years ago in third grade when i was teaching and we did so much for the environment and even back then, we were talking about climate change. I spoke to one of these gals who's now 26, and she said, I don't know if I have a future. Because we were working on climate change and all of these other issues back when I was in third grade. And I don't feel like anything's moved. And this is coming from a 26-year-old who is very active and 
is out there trying to change the world for the better. Society does need to make the right choice, and I know it has to be collectively. Absolutely. It has to be big widespread. It has to be this decade. It has to be this decade. So it is urgent. There's no doubt about that, Catherine. No doubt about that. And, and the more rapidly we do it, it's always better. The outcome is always better the more rapidly we do it. And to achieve 1.5 degrees, you really need to peak in the next few years, literally in the next few years. And I'm just looking at a graph to my left and it, and it kind of is peaked. It's kind of flat. It's not quite going down, right? And we need it to go down. Last year, of course, isn't so long ago, right? This year has changed quite dramatically. But on the other hand, there's a 27 meeting coming up this year and there will be a discussion around at that meeting, very much around, are the nations tracking? So many nations will be a little bit exposed on how they haven't uh, perhaps tracked as well as they ought. And this is the beauty of the Paris Agreement that came out in 2015. The Paris Agreement, which replaced the Kyoto Agreement, the Paris Agreement made it possible for the nations to say what they would do and then actually to track and review what they do. And so what we have now is a much more closed system in the sense that it now includes doing what you said you would do, <laughs> right? That's what will happen with the Accountability. Review, a kind of accountability. And you have to understand that there's an enormous inertia in the system as well, right? We, we've already committed to um, a lot of uh, past use of fossil fuels and current use of fossil fuels. And so you actually have to unwind that economic system. This sector is, I think, $8 trillion or something similar like that. It's a huge amount of money compared to the amount I get for research. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that means that you have that. And that means you have to unwind the sort of entrench systems and replace them with new systems. And, and so I, I understand the frustration of your student. I, I can fully see how she would be a little bit disillusioned. And yes, it's urgent and it's challenging and we may not make the 1.5, but the more we do all the time is only the right thing to be doing. And so increasingly, there are things that are actually quite possible. Actually, in Australia and elsewhere in the world, the cheapest form of energy is actually wind power. And the second most cheap uh, energy is solar panels, solar electricity. And in the case of Australia, the difficulty is to figure out how to make it reliable so that you can meet the peaks and troughs satisfactorily. And that requires new investments and there's chances to game the system and so government interventions are required. But an example I like is that in 2012, the South Australian government, one of the states of 
of Australia decided that they would meet their 2020 target with 20% reduction in emissions, 20% renewable. And they made the decision in 2012 and in 2020, they'd actually reached something like 30, 30, 32%. So they overshot the target and were generating um, 30% of their power supply. And the point I'm really making is actually with a concerted effort with the right policies in place, and they have to be a broad spectrum of policies, policies that will address the biggest consumers and users, generators to the smallest consumers, generators, so that they are all empowered to make the sorts of changes. And that is the nub of it. The nub of it is a sustained set of policies at the country level, which allows these things to be addressed and allows the transformation to happen. And, and maybe it's true that we need to have a kind of a, a war footing, a, a war footing which is you combat climate change. The solutions are there. Countries can do it. There's enough sunlight, there's enough wind, there's um, other things that you need to make and we desperately need the energy. You know, I like to be warm, I love energy, I use it all the time. I can't go without it in reality, but we can have it. So my feeling is that there are solutions there. It does require concerted will and that is where the most inertia is. It's that social license, right? So that's why my job's done. I'm now being inexpert in areas of policy, <laughs> in areas which are completely outside my real expertise. And how dare I do that as a scientist? <laughs> oh, so uh, <laughs> that makes me laugh because uh, one of the oceanographers I had on the show, whom you know quite well, Helen Phillips, and she mentioned the exact thing about, well, scientists, we aren't trained or meant to do the litigation. We bring the science to them, and now they're, they're wanting more from you. Uh, society is wanting more from you. It's odd, isn't it? It's, it's odd, isn't it? So you, in, a, in a sense, you're right. The scientists provide the bad news, right? We tell you how the planet has changed. We sometimes say how terrible the future could be if we make those cho choices, right? If we make those choices, if we choose the high emissions pathway or if we mitigate too slowly, we will cause these sorts of dangerous things. And they are dangerous at some level, right? If the Greenland ice sheet uh, is committed and we may be there actually, we may actually be there to being melting away completely or by completely I really mean to give four metres of sea level, half the size. If we've made commitments uh, in effect to melt Antarctica in the latest IPCC report, they actually say 15 metres and above is possible in um, 
in the case where things we did not understand actually occur. And that report, 15 metres, it's in the report and all the governments agreed to it. Remember, that summary for policymakers, every government agreed to that. So the governments understand that that is a possibility. It's a lot of people working, signing off on that piece of written work and it's a high impact event that could occur as a consequence of the emissions we make. So, so where that's where the bad is normally. <laughs> um, and it's remarkable, I think, how how much climate scientists really try and communicate those risks. They're out there talking to those risks. What has changed in this COVID period, actually, Catherine, is that there's been quite a bit of climate activism. There's been quite a bit of discussion by the likes of uh, Mike Carney. Mike Carney used to be the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK. He has been very strident about uh, taking and factoring in climate change in the industry sector. Those things have changed actually since 2007 when Al Gore and IPCC won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, since 2013 when we wrote the fifth assessment report, that activism is much more strident and obvious now relative to just nine years ago. I was very before the time. <laughs> you were. <laughs> yeah. I think there's been a lot of progress at moving from the science to actually that interface that goes to implementation, social acceptance, and the social license to enact it. It's all very well to have the science, but the science doesn't make any progress until actually society accepts it and acts on it. And that step is gaining momentum. It may not be fast enough relative to the emissions that are going on, to creating the real solution, but I talked about the COP26, which was last year in Glasgow, and there's a very specific phase out of internal combustion engine, phase down of coal. Those things at the sector level are what we need. And that's genuinely talked about. And so I think we have moved, maybe not fast enough, I get that, but I we have moved. And you can see um, the automobile industry and aviation industry are all gearing up for actually a greener world as best as they can do. And the challenge is actually to get onto that pathway. We have solutions, get onto that pathway and make it happen. And you can see it happening. It just needs a little bit more momentum and then actually it will flip. It will flip. And I do agree with you and I do think you are right because we do have renewable energy that is being invested heavily into now. A lot of big investors and small investors like me and like you 
who are investing in it. So there is a change that is happening. I would like to see it move along faster and quicker. For me, if you remember from the last episode, for me, a lot of it is about the ecosystems and the environment because the wildlife live there. And our food (laughs) is part of that ecosystem. When I look at ecosystems and I look at the suffering of animals, that's where my activism comes in because they don't have a voice. Die with whatever choices we make. Or they're forced to migrate. So one of the results in the report that I was involved in in 2019 was that the fish species of the world that reside near the equator will move away from the equator. And the ones in the mid-latitudes will move towards the poles. They're doing this because the surface of the oceans is warmer and the observations of fish actually show us that. And so it's exactly what you're talking about. In that report, we did an assessment of all the sort of marine coastal environments that are on the planet. So the coral reefs, the rocky beaches, the kelps uh, environments, and all of them are actually at risk. You know, we know things about those environments, about the animals that live in them, how they respond to temperature. And in every case, the environments were never improving for them. They're actually in a negative trajectory from climate change. And, And that negative trajectory is because we are warming the world universally and there are consequences that go for that. So most of the species that are mobile fish, for example, are actually demonstrably moving towards to the poles. And there are just a few areas, the Arctic and the high Antarctic and near the Antarctic continent, which are actually becoming kind of uh, more productive, but the rest are becoming less productive. And now, this has consequences for human communities. Human communities typically live the small island developing states. There's uh, 65 million people who live on those. The low-lying areas around the world, 680 million people in a population of a bit over 9 billion. That's actually a substantial fraction. And for the small island developing states, actually what's going on there is that they draw often uh, protein from wild fisheries and those fish are moving towards the pole, so it makes it a little bit harder for them. And we estimated in that report that the wild fishery would decline 4%. I think it was 4% per degree of global warming. So less fish catch. The fish catch would decline by 4% per degree of global warming. And so if you put the footprint of where those changes are happening with human communities, you can see actually this is additional pressure on human communities most often didn't do emissions and having to suffer the impacts. So there's a there's a sort of perverse outcome in the way some of these emissions and their impacts and consequences has on the human communities that depend on those ecosystems. 
And so, so I think this is exactly the point you're making. You're making it as an activist. But I can tell you that the observations support the idea that these impacts are negative. And the less impact, the more we can mitigate, the better the outcomes. One of the things that you have done, and I just want to, to just reiterate quickly, you, as a researcher, as a scientist, you and your team did discover the glaciers in Antarctica were melting on the underside due to the currents from the different oceans meeting and warming up underneath. And the other was you predicted, before it ever happened, you predicted the fire catastrophes and you have predicted so much more based on the research. We are in a state of urgency. We are in a state of urgency, Catherine. I, I have to say that, in fact, all this sort of research is shared in the community. We, we scaffold off other people's ideas. Mm-hmm. We uh, uh, collaborate, actually. The scientific community in climate science, because it's open science, uh, collaborate all the time. The science community has talked about how those sort of extremes, wildfires, and some of the consequences of wildfires on ecosystems in the terrestrial space, because I had a group that worked on that for 10 years, and our understanding of these other things, like how much the oceans are melting Antarctica, quite different to Greenland, those things have come out of the scientific community. You're quite right. And I'm really glad to have been part of that. It's a, it's a funny thing. I never understood. I would, uh, as a researcher back in when I did my PhD, I never understood that I would be doing something that was so relevant to the whole of the population of this planet. I never understood that. It is an accident. But actually, it's a pretty exciting kind of thing to have been involved in. And, you know, I've been in this business for 30 years, roughly, uh, looking at how the oceans have changed, how the atmosphere has changed, and some of the dangers that come with it. And I have to say, um, it's been really nice to be relevant. And I have been relevant as a consequence. Absolutely. And I'm honored to be in your circle of friends. Yes. So anything on the decline in oxygen content? Oh, finally published that this year, I think. Ah, okay. <laughs> Some science takes a while to do. And that's perhaps something that's not understood well. It's actually worthwhile to reflect on how long, Catherine, it takes for science to uncover things and to mature it to give it the the absolute sense that we're super confident about it that it then becomes something to act on by society so if you think about it there has been an investment in climate science an exploration of the earth and it has serendipitously in a way allowed us to actually be aware of the influences of humans on this planet. 
And if we'd never made that investment at all, if we'd never made that investment at all, which is hard to imagine actually, it's hard to imagine that we would never have explored the oceans, never made the measurements, but if we'd never done it, we would not be anywhere near as certain as we are about human influence in this climate system. The oceans are an incredibly important part of that climate system. It's actually important because it takes up 90% of the energy that's being trapped by uh, that changing composition of the atmosphere. It actually accounts for a significant fraction of the oxygen we breathe uh, in this planet because actually there's all these green animals in the surface waters that are uh, respiring oxygen. And so the oceans are a critical element. And if we hadn't made those small investments, we wouldn't know quite as much as we do. And we would not be able to make quite as compelling a case as we are around climate change. Well, thank you for that. You are an internationally well-known physical oceanographer there from the University of Tasmania at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies, but you are also a person who loves to build boats. Have you been able to be out on your boat that you built? Ah, uh, yes. I <sighs> built a kayak, a beautiful kayak, which is the follow-on to my rather beautiful American-designed rowing boat. And I have been out on my rowing boat a little bit, a little bit. We, we rowed into Hastings Bay, which is uh, south of Hobart, and spent the day on the beach and in the water. And I've done a little bit in my kayak, but not as much because I can't quite sit in it <laughs> <laughs> and paddle for hours. It's You're a little, a little bit, bit too bit tall. too tight for me. So I might have to... Hang <laughs> Yeah, my knees are too high. Uh, <laughs> it's too, it's too snug a fit, is what I really mean to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, back to the drawing but, board. Oh yes, there's another boat in me. Um, not another house, but another boat. <laughs> and so I'd love to build another couple. Of I bid you the best of times in your boats, whether you're making them or you're sitting in them. <laughs> Enjoy them. Thank, thank you very much, Catherine. And, and as always, it's a pleasure to, pleasure to be here talking about some science that I've got to love. Well, and I love the science and I absolutely love talking to you and I enjoy it. The last episode, you had to run very quickly because you were meeting with your premiere. I think you were going to be talking about fires, actually. It, it, yes, so I met with the premier of Tasmania and he, he was very engaged. Tasmania is another one of those success stories. It actually is a uh, already a carbon net zero country uh, state, if you like. And unlike the rest of the world, we have uh, negative emissions. So what's actually happening is that this state is basically compensating the emissions from cars and agriculture by the growth of forests so and so that is a success story and it's right here where i live we can't sustain that for a long long time but actually we are net emissions today 
Well, that is awesome. Net zero emissions. Yes, that is awesome. That is so wonderful to hear. It can be done. And so to end the show, what are Professor Nathan Bindoff's last inspiring words? To finish, actually, uh, which would be kind of um, the relevant point, Catherine, what I would finish with is still uh, plenty of work to do to keep the science in front of society around climate change. And that's exactly what the research community, the climate change, the climate science community still needs to do, right? It's keeping the science current and alive. That then drives the decision-making and the values that are around uh, that success, actually. And, and so we can't fail in doing that. So my job's not done, just probably time for someone else to do it better. Professor Nathan Bindoff, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. And no, nobody can do it better. They'll just do it differently. You have been awesome for the planet. And I thank you for all of the research that you've provided. Thank you again so much for sharing your inspiration, your facts, your research, your love of science and your love for the oceans. And you have so many memories of being out on the boat that I just would love to sit down and just talk about things, the life on a boat, on a ship. Thank thank you, Catherine. I'll tell you about the fire story one day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. To learn more about Professor Nathan Bindoff and his research, go to University of Tasmania website, utas.edu.au, dot and search button for Nathan Bindoff. N-A-T-H-A-N-B-I-N-D-O-F-F or simply Google Nathan Bindoff. There's loads of information on his climate change research. Well, thank you for participating in the ways you are reducing or eliminating single-use plastics, other types of plastics, or even nylon. Thank you. And plastic pollution. Well, I have the winning names now from this contest. The two winners are S. Wong of Malaysia. S. Wong owns a thrift store and has discontinued the use of plastic bags and other types of single-use plastics in the store. Having a thrift store is also something sustainable. And the second winner is C. Jewel Roth of United States, who turns down the use of plastic bags, including turning down plastic bags from the takeout restaurant industry. Congratulations to both of you. Thank you for entering. I appreciate all of you. Coming in December is a guest whose music is dear to my heart, as well as, of course, his positive imprints. I can't wait to share with you. Follow, subscribe, or download this podcast, Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.?